Good to see you all. Very good to see you all from this position here. Been looking forward to this, and I still look forward to the day when we will have an entire congregation I can preach in front of and see their entire faces. God willing, that day is coming. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John. Some brethren have asked me in recent weeks what I would be preaching next. And I've told them Romans, but I also said I might preach something in between. I asked my fellow elders if I could have a little bit of a break before I uh, jump into another lengthy series. And um, I told them I would like to preach 1 John in between now and the time I start Romans in part because many years ago when I uh, first began preaching in Minneapolis before I even became a pastor, I started preaching through 1 John. So I desire to get to Romans and then to finish preaching Romans before my preaching career is over. And so I'm going to aim to keep the series on 1 John relatively short. And since I've preached it before, I think I can do that. And since we're aiming for shorter services while we wear masks, even my messages will be shorter, at least for a time, till we can remove our paraphernalia. If you want to hear more about a particular text in 1 John, therefore, we have the parking lot out there, and we can talk. But let's begin by reading the first part of 1 John, and I'll read starting at verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 10 of chapter 2. If I read that much, we can uh, get basically a grip or a handle or uh, at least a clue of what the main themes of 1 John are. And I'll make some comment about that at some point in the message, God willing. John begins, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, A new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Amen. Well, let's look to God in prayer and ask for his help as we come to the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, that you have given us your word written in plain language, language that we can understand. We thank you that we have the word even translated into our own native tongue. Help us to profit from your word today by granting us your Holy Spirit and speaking to the heart of every man, woman, and child sitting here or listening via the internet so that Christ Jesus and he alone will be glorified. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. Amen. John Stott, some of you may be familiar with that name. He was an Anglican pastor and author, um, died about nine years ago, he wrote a commentary on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And it was published first in 1964, and then again a second edition in 1988. And so he wrote, the middle and end of the 20th century are an epoch, a time period, of fundamental insecurity. Everything is changing. Nothing is stable. New nations have constantly been coming to birth, no doubt a reference to the fall of the Soviet Union. New social and political patterns are continually evolving. The very survival of civilization is in doubt before the threat of a nuclear war. We could almost say in our days, the survival of uh, civilized civilization uh, could be in doubt before the threat of the next election. 
He says, even the Christian church, which has received a kingdom that cannot be shaken and is charged to proclaim him who is the same yesterday and today and forever, now often speaks its message softly, shyly, and without conviction. Many church members are filled with uncertainty and confusion. Against this background, to read the letters of John is to enter another world altogether. For the marks of these epistles are assurance, knowledge, confidence, and boldness. Now, as I said, John Stott died in the year 2011. But if he were alive in 2020 and putting out a third edition of his commentary on the letters of John, I think he could use the same words to introduce the message of 1 John. That's the part that this quote comes from in his commentary, just as he did in 1964 and 1988. I didn't mention when I said the reason, gave you the reasons I was preaching on 1 John, I didn't mention the particular suitability of this epistle to our times as one of the things I considered when I made that decision. And if I had said that, it would have been a lie because I wasn't thinking about that. But John Stott is right on the money when he says what he says here. Because if ever, in my lifetime anyway, the statements of the psalmists seem to be coming true, and I mean these statements, the foundations are destroyed, Psalm 11, or all the foundations of the earth are unstable, Psalm 82, it would seem to be that now is that time. Last week I listened to a sermon in which the preacher read Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20. And that text reads, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And that preacher was right to say that these words describe the times that we are living in. And we will not find answers to today's pressing issues from CNN or from Fox News or from the halls of Congress or the White House or the CDC or from governor's mansions or city halls or from the Supreme Court of the United States. We will find them only in God's Word. And that is and that will always be the case because, as Peter wrote, quoting Isaiah the prophet again, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The proto-gnostics, and in coming weeks I'll try to explain that word for you, and the libertines of the apostles John's day, these were some of the people in error, we could call them, that he was addressing, they are long gone. 
but their spiritual descendants are still alive and well. And they are all over our country, and they are all over our world. And John's message in 1 John is the message that they need, if they'll hear it. But his message is also exactly what we, the Church of Christ, need now. Today we're going to consider just the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. Uh, It's called, by many writers, John's Preface. The first four verses. Most epistles begin with a greeting or a salutation in which the writer identifies himself and identifies his readers. John does not do that here. Uh, This epistle does not even name the author. The book of Hebrews is like that, and then 1 John is like that of all the letters in the New Testament. 2 John and 3 John say something about the author. They don't give his name, but they just say, from the elder. Probably a nickname for the Apostle John. I believe, as do most authors, most, I should say authors, most um, commentators, that John the Apostle, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, is the author of 1 John. How do people arrive at that conclusion? Just let me tell you very briefly. You go back to the Gospel of John, and you figure out by the process of elimination who it was that wrote that Gospel. Seems to be it was the apostle that Jesus loved. And you work by the process of elimination, and you narrow it down to John, the son of Zebedee. He was most likely the beloved disciple. And then you compare the language that's used in John's gospel, as well as with Second and Third John, and even the book of Revelation, with what we have in this epistle, and it points to the same author, The same author is the Gospel of John. And then you add the testimony of the early church in the first couple of centuries following uh, the death of all the apostles. You come up again with John, the son of Zebedee. So we're going to look at the preface today. And for today, I'm going to follow the outline of the man I quoted, John Stott. He says that the preface unfolds the purpose of God from eternity to eternity in five discernible stages. So I'll have five headings for my outline. And when he says from eternity, he means at the very beginning, it says that which was from the beginning, and that's really what we like to call eternity past, as we'll see. And then going down to verse 4, he says, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And of course, as Christians, we have joy when we believe. And throughout our life, as we heard earlier from Pastor Smith, we are to be in joy no matter what our outward circumstances. But as Stott says, fullness of joy, if we want to talk about it in absolute terms, will not come until the age to come when Christ comes in his kingdom. So that's God, uh, John unfolding the purpose of God from eternity 
to eternity here in this preface. So let's begin with the first point, the eternal pre-existence. That's verses 1 and 2, the eternal pre-existence. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. As I said, this is John's preface to this epistle. I said he also wrote the gospel according to John, and there was a preface in that gospel as well. The first 18 verses are called the prologue of John's gospel. Prologue and preface are really similar terms. They're synonyms, but they call John's gospel's first 18 verses his prologue, and so I think that's why they don't call this the prologue, but just the preface. But there are similarities there, and they are of great help to understanding John's preface. In fact, they're a great help to understanding all of the Gospel of John and all of the first epistle of John. So what we're going to do is compare these things. We're going to notice some similarities. Even if the similarities to the beginning of John's Gospel didn't strike you, as a Christian, you would know that these two verses that I just read are about Jesus Christ. When we look at the the prologue to John's Gospel, all doubt is removed. So let's notice the similarities, try to do it as briefly as we can. You notice here in 1 John 1, 1, it speaks about that which was from the beginning. Well, let's go over, and you can keep your finger here, because we'll be flipping back. Let's go over to John chapter 1, Gospel according to John chapter 1. And here's how that begins, the first two verses of that gospel account. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's the Word we know from John's gospel is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He was in the beginning. He existed forever. He was with God forever. He was not only very close to God, He is God. The Word was God. And then verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Well, John's first letter says, that which was from the beginning. He's talking about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then in 1 John 1, verse 2, in the last part of that, it says, he declares to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. There's his eternality and the fact that he was with the Father. Well, again, you see that in John 1, verses 1 and 2. He was in the beginning. He's eternal. And he was with the Father. In the beginning, he was with God, verse 2. And then in verse 1 again of 1 John 1, the epistle, verse 1, the last part of it, it says... Um, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
This is the only other place in the whole New Testament besides John's Gospel that speaks of Jesus Christ as the Word of God. Here it calls him the Word of Life. And some writers, John Stott is one of them, I mentioned Stott because I hadn't read his commentary before, but I started reading it this week. John Stott is one of the ones who says he doesn't think that John is talking when he uses the word word here about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He thinks he's using the phrase word of life the same way Paul uses it in Philippians chapter 2 to just talk about the gospel. What do I say about that? I think he could be right but only half right. My thinking is this. When you think about the similarity of the beginning of John's gospel and then that John starts this way with such similar language and in the very first verse refers to the word of life, I think it's almost impossible to say he's not speaking about the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. But I also think this. One of the notes of the Apostle John's writing in the Gospel of John and in 1 John is that he loved ambiguous words and statements. And so it's very possible because there is an emphasis upon the message here and what is preached that John could be using a phrase, word of life, that refers to both the life that was manifested, Jesus Christ, as the word but also he uses the phrase word of life to refer to the gospel message. You see this all over John's gospel. If you want to prove it to yourself, just go home this afternoon, read 1 John, and try to figure out every time it uses the word he to refer to either God the Father or God the Son, which one it is. And you'll say, well, based on this previous verse, it must be the Son. And I would say, well, then read the next verse and tell me who it must be referring to. Anyway, I move on. There's the eternal preexistence. John is writing about the Word, the eternal Son of God. Secondly, the historical manifestation. Again, we're looking at verses 1 and 2 of 1 John 1. Let's compare what we see here with what we see in John's Gospel, chapter 1. It says, that which was from the beginning, I'm reading from the beginning of 1 John right now, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So the eternal God. And now John says, we've seen that. Let's go over to John 1. You know the text. It's John 1 and verse 14. John said what he said about the Word, especially in the first four verses there. But then he changes his focus to the fact that Jesus Christ came into this world. He was the Son of God. He was the Word of God become flesh. And that's what he says in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's who John is writing about. 
the pre-existent Son of God who has always existed, who is God, who always has been God, and always will be God, but he was manifested in this world, the historical manifestation. And as he says in verse 14 of John 1, that word became flesh. It became flesh, or he became flesh. Now let's notice two things that John is trying to get across here. Number one, he is establishing the historical reality of the Son of God coming into this world as a man. He's establishing the truthfulness of that bit of history. He's basically saying here, we're not making this up. When we apostles are asserting that the Word became flesh, we're not making this up. We're not passing along things that aren't true. There's a modern scholarly view that 1 John and the Gospel according to John are not really written by the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee and the brother of James, the uh, fishing cohort of the Apostle Peter. The view is that they're the product of what they called a Johannine community. That there were a bunch of people, some of whom, at least when this group began, actually heard John and saw John and knew John the Apostle, but John didn't write anything down. But this community really loved John and they really loved his message. And as they hung together and kind of clung to the past and talked about their beloved apostle that they knew in the past, they started writing things down. Read this, making things up that they think John might have said or we could extrapolate from something John said. And, and then they started calling that the truth. And they put a bunch of these things together and they said, voila, the gospel according to John. And then the first epistle of John. That's the idea. And John is saying here, that's not it. It's not that people took some of what they heard from an apostle and they built a legend or they built a myth or something like that. No. John is saying, this is what happened This is what we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and our hands handled. So one of the things he's doing is just establishing the truthfulness of what he has to say. The second thing he's doing is he's fighting against error that had infiltrated the churches to which he was writing, probably churches in Asia, just like he wrote to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation. The church tradition is that John spend the latter part of his life in Ephesus and and in Asia around Ephesus, and that's where those churches are located. And error, as we're going to see, had infiltrated these churches, and it was troubling the churches. And there was a Christological concern that is a concern about who Jesus Christ was. Did he really come in the flesh? And John is saying here in 1 John 1 at the beginning, he really came in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says in 1 John 1, We have looked upon Him. Our hands have handled Him. He may well, in those words, be referring to what we saw in Luke 24 just some weeks ago. Verse 39, when He came to the upper room and all the apostles were there on the night after Jesus rose from the dead, And Jesus said to them in verse 39, 
Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And interestingly, in that phrase in John, 1 John 1, 1, we have looked upon and handled. It's the same two Greek words you have in Luke 24, 39, where he says, handle me and see. Same two words. And John is saying, we did that. We had our doubts. And he knew it. And he said, so touch me and look and ask me any questions you want. And John was saying, this really happened. But we're going to see throughout the epistle of 1 John that John has to deal with these people who didn't believe that or teach that about Jesus. You see it at first in 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. Many people who are teaching heresy about Jesus Christ. He says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manif made manifest that none of them were of us. And you see it again in chapter 4 at the beginning of the chapter. These false teachers likely viewed the human flesh of Jesus, in fact, all human flesh, because it's material, they viewed it as inferior and corrupt. So for us, they looked at your flesh as a prison house that you're stuck in till your spirit can be released when you die. But for now, you're just in a prison house. For us, that's what it's like to be conjoined to flesh. Well, for God, it would be to these people unthinkable that God would be joined to flesh. For these heretics... They might have believed Jesus was a real man, but they didn't believe the Christ was a real man. They might have believed that the Christ came upon this man, Jesus, and stayed there till he went to the cross. But he would never die. He's God. And so he wasn't really one with the man, Jesus Christ. But that is the teaching of the Bible. Not just that he inhabited Jesus, but he became man. So John in his language here in 1 John chapter 1 at the beginning, is basically saying, with read-my-lips dogmatism, yes, he did become a man. And he's still a man, the God-man Jesus Christ sitting in heaven. So there's the historical manifestation. The Son of God became man. And then thirdly, we have the authoritative proclamation. The authoritative proclamation. That's in the last part of verse 1, and then verse 2, and then into verse 3. Concerning the word of life, we're writing about the Son of God who became man. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. So John now is talking about the authoritative proclamation. And because he's an apostle, whatever he says about Jesus is authoritative. Whatever he writes is the Word of God. 
And he's concerned that his readers understand that and take that this way. He's not like these false teachers. He saw Jesus. He handled him. He heard him. John is also concerned, of course, about his own credibility here, just like Paul was in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 when he talked about those super apostles, those really, really sharp guys, great orators. Remember, he wanted to establish his own credibility. Well, John is doing something like that here. We'll see later on in one of the later chapters how he refers to the water and the blood that flowed out of Jesus' side. Remember what he said in John 19? One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And then listen to what John said next. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. In other words, John was an apostle, and he was given a charge from Jesus. You remember it maybe at the end of Luke 24. It was verses 45 to 49. We won't turn back there. But he said to them that, I am going to be leaving And you're going to go out and preach in my name based on the things that you have seen. Verse 48 of Luke 24, he said, And you are witnesses of these things. Remember that? And then he said, I'm going to send upon you the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Wait in Jerusalem till he comes. Then what are you going to do? Go out and tell everybody. And that's what John is saying here. It's an authoritative proclamation. He was an apostle. He was given a charge from Jesus. He was made a witness. And this is what a witness does. We saw it, and now we declare it to you. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. This is what the apostles did. All of them. And John did it longer than any of them, if we can believe the early church tradition that all of the other 11 apostles were martyred. But John was not. So he did it longer than any of them till near the end of the first century, as far as we can figure out. He was still doing it, we're told, by church tradition as a very old man, possibly in his 90s. And they said that they would take him to one of the churches in Asia, And they would help him to stand up, to speak to the people, or sit, get to his chair where he sat and spoke to them. And that John, when he was old and frail, would just say, love one another. And when they asked him why he just said that, maybe it was in part because he was such an old man. But his answer was, because if you do that, you're doing what you need to do. And we'll see that note in this epistle. Then fourthly, we have the communal fellowship. The communal fellowship. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There's something more important here than just John being faithful to his calling as an apostle. In other words, I I was told by Jesus to do this. I'm going to do this. That's one of the reasons he did it. But he said, here's another reason. So that you may have fellowship with us. 
And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What's more important than John being faithful to his calling, in other words? Well, it's the souls of those to whom he writes. They need to believe what he says. And if they do believe what he says, they will have real living fellowship, spiritual fellowship with him, an apostle. And if with him, then with all the apostles. We declare this to you that you also may have fellowship with us. All of the apostles, all the apostolic community. And if with them, then they have fellowship with God himself that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why they needed to listen to what he said and what he wrote, and not listen to the teachers of error that had infiltrated the church and were troubling the churches of Christ, at least in Asia at this time. This was true when John wrote it, that if those people believed what he said with all their hearts, repented of their sins, and sought to do the will of God, they would have fellowship with John and with Matthew and James and Simon and Andrew and Bartholomew and Thaddeus and all the apostles. And it's true for people today. It's true for everyone you need to believe what John says about Jesus. You sitting there behind the mask, you need to believe what John says about Jesus. You need to embrace him as your Savior. You do. And you need to hold on to him and hold on to that profession no matter what. No matter the trials that come into your life, no matter the persecution you face, no matter what distractions come into your life, no matter that you went to college and you heard a whole bunch of different stuff than your parents ever told you growing up, no matter that you got married and really got busy, no matter that you have a career that's very important, if you're going to make it here in the Northeast and in New Jersey in particular, no matter what happens in all of your life, you need to believe in Him and hold fast to your profession of Christ. As John said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They weren't real Christians. How do we know that? Because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. This is very important. It's a wonderful thing to have fellowship with you folks. I'm, I'm, I'm really delighted to be here and standing and preaching to people that I could touch and handle, but I won't. It's wonderful. And we have been helped by this time without being able to do this to realize how wonderful it is. I hope you look at it that way. I do. But it's even better to have fellowship with the apostles of our Lord. And by far the best thing is to have fellowship with God himself through Jesus Christ. Because with that fellowship comes the forgiveness of all of our sins. It comes life here in this world, eternal life. In our souls, rivers of living waters flowing out from our bellies, as Jesus said. And life forever and ever in the kingdom of God. But that only comes through faith in the message of the apostles, including John. 
and through the Christ that they proclaimed. John wrote in 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. That was true for the readers of John's epistle then, and that is true for you sitting here today. And then finally, just verse 4, what Stott calls the completed joy. He says, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. In other words, if you believe these things, to some degree you will have fullness of joy right now. Because that's eternal life according to John's gospel and according to Jesus' words. But like Stott said, it's going all the way to the end. If we think through it logically, well, when are we really going to have fullness of joy? Without any pain or sorrow or tears mixed in at all. That won't be till Jesus comes again. But that's the goal of John, that we all make it to that day by believing in Jesus Christ and holding steadfastly to him throughout our, the course of our life. Let me just say a couple of things in closing, practical matters. First, of course, there's this doctrinal issue that we could say looms the largest of anything that John writes. You have to believe the right things about Jesus Christ, that he is the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, but he came as a man. But then there's some more obviously practical matters in John's epistle that I want to mention. He emphasizes very strongly the necessity of righteousness. Not justification, but living a righteous life and obeying Christ's commands. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Living righteously is very important to John. And it needs to be important to us because he says there's only two ways to live righteously or unrighteously. And if you live righteously, it's a sign that you're God's. And if you live unrighteously, not according to his word, it's a sign that you're not. People want to tell us if we're not willing to join in the cause celeb, in the cause or issue of the day, like maybe LGBTQ plus agenda, that, then we're on the wrong side of history. And if we're bold enough to say, but this is what God says in his word, the Bible, well, then you're even worse. Then you're evil. You're a hater. Brethren, we need to not listen to the words of the day the catchphrases, and what's popular. For instance, if we say something like, well, killing little babies in their mother's wombs is murder. It's wrong. You're going to get it from this world around us. 
we need to be concerned with one thing. What does God say that we should think? And what does God say we should do? And then as John says, we better be sure we do it. So the necessity of righteousness or obedience to God. And then secondly, the necessity of love. Love for God, but especially, like I said earlier, love for the brethren. My little children, love one another. What we heard from 1 Corinthians 13 recently from Pastor Carlson was an excellent introduction to this epistle because that's what John is all about here. Look at just a couple of texts in chapter 4 where John says, verse 11, first of all, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. No saying. There's no saying, well, you know, there's two great commandments. At least I focus on the first. John says, no. No. If you don't love your brother in tangible ways, you don't love God, no matter how much you say you do. Brethren, let's remember this in our times. Let's remember this about all things COVID. Let's remember this about masks that you may really hate to wear. Like me. So I'm making sure I'm on the preaching schedule. <laughs> but I don't like to wear masks. But brethren, we don't take our orders from anyone but God, ultimately. Ultimately. And at the top of God's orders for us in our relating to one another is that we love one another. We don't take our orders first and foremost from the U.S. Constitution or from conservative talking heads. We take them from God and from people like Paul who said, if it causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. In other words, I, I won't even enjoy a steak for the rest of my life. So what if someone said you need to wear a mask for the rest of your life to protect the health of other people? Whether they're right or wrong about that. You know what your answer should be? Yeah, so what? I'll do it. If there's really some chance I can spare my brother or sister from going through misery and dying without company and letting the family not have a decent funeral. Peter said we should obey our leaders. You can read it in 1 Peter 2 as well as I can, starting at verse 15. Even if they're being oppressive, the question is, are they making you sin? Paul said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Brethren, when it comes to these kinds of issues, 
let these be the texts that we turn to. Before we turn to the First Amendment or the Second Amendment or to opinion pieces of our favorite writers or to slogans on social media or on t-shirts or wherever. May God help us. And I'll just ask now, pardon me for going over my time that I aimed for, but I haven't preached in a month and a half. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take your word and write it upon our hearts. Help us to believe these things and help us to live the things that John and Peter and James and Paul and Luke and Matthew and Mark all write for us. Hear us, for we ask this in Jesus Christ, your Son's name. Amen.